Hello and welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study from the Rick and Bubba Studios here at the Broadcast Plaza. Thank you for being with us. I'm Rick Burgess, co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show and director of TheManChurch.com. Uh, ManChurch.com out again this week. If you're watching this live on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, the April 21st, uh, tomorrow night, April 22nd, uh, we'll be doing Man Church at First Baptist Church Opelika. I'll be speaking. Charles Billingsley and the entire band will be live in concert. They will be going into the second uh, curriculum from themanchurch.com. It's uh, going to be available for everyone uh, next week. It's called Real Men. Uh, it's based on eight men of the Bible, 40 weeks worth of curriculum, uh, with me teaching on the video, and each man in the group has their own study guide, uh, and the facilitators go through that uh, based on the schedule of 40 weeks out of the 52 weeks of a year. Uh, however your church calendar works. So if you uh, if you would like to have that, you can go to themanchurch.com next week. That should be available. Our current uh, curriculum called The Pursuit uh, you know, of, of Christ-Centered Masculinity, uh, it has been out for a year now, and it's available to you as well. But for the one tomorrow night, they've already done the first curriculum at First Baptist Opelika, and we jump into the second curriculum, uh, and I'll be, they're already eight weeks into that, or ten weeks into that, and I'll be their first man church in the second phase. Uh, Presbyterian, uh, all of you coming out at Rainbow Presbyterian and Gadsden, that's Sunday night. Now, at uh, uh, Rainbow Presbyterian, they're starting the first curriculum. Uh, that's the pursuit of Christ-centered masculinity, and this will be their first man church, and I'll be there to kick that off coming up on Sunday night. Find everything you could possibly ever want to know uh, about our curriculum, our resources for individual men, uh, our conferences uh, by going to themanchurch.com. Uh, and you can find out where there's a man church service somewhere near you if you would like to join us or you're interested in maybe implementing this at your church. We have a lot to cover in the Bible study today, so let's jump right in. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for once again today we get to the heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel, uh, as, as Paul instructed us that we're to, you know, review and kind of assess ourselves and see where we are. Uh, I know there may be uh, a tendency for some that, that watch this Bible study or listen to it every week uh, that, that, are, that are pretty mature in their faith to go, well, I don't know if I need to hear a recap of the heart of the gospel. We always need to be reminded of what we believe, why we believe it, and how we uh, are redeemed or how we can be redeemed. So help us, Lord, with this today. In your holy name we pray, amen. Yes, I will admit this to you. When I saw, you know, we're rolling through all these different attributes of God. We're going through the Bible study knowing God. The concept, uh, yes, you can know a lot about God, but still not know God. And, you know, this was, this was really difficult. I was uh, listening to Steve Farrar's Bible study. Uh, I don't know, uh, some of you, let, let me just clearly uh, give you a, a recommendation uh, if you can go to the podcast wherever you get podcasts uh, and follow Steve Farrar when he has Bible studies and you can go through his library they're fantastic he's one of my mentors as he is for many men in, in men's ministry and and he was discussing um, in the, uh, a book that he was reading uh, by Michael Youssef and and, he, and, and Youssef is quoting um, uh, uh, some some the latest stuff from a Barna survey from 2017, which was very, very troubling, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of break it down to you. And, and the bottom line is this, they interviewed people who claimed to be, claimed to be Christians, okay? And when they claimed to be Christians, that means they went to church on, on a, a regular basis, uh, they, they had a, a belief in, in, the, in, in one living God. But when you press these Christians on whether or not they had a true biblical worldview, I'm talking about Everything that you look at in the world, you, these, these people who claim to be Christians would view the world through the, the filter of the Word of God, the Word of God on gender, the Word of God on marriage, the Word of God on the exclusivity of Christianity, all these kinds of things. Do you know the percentage, the percentage of people who claim to be Christians? This was done in 2017. I, I can only imagine it may be worse now. I hope not. But in 2017, Barna came back with the research, and I don't have time to unpack all of it today because it'll eat into our time. 17%. 17%. I didn't say 70. 17% of people who claim to be Christians say that they have a biblical worldview. Now, see, that's the problem because that means that uh, just like uh, J.I. Packer is trying to tell us in this book, this means that we've come up with maybe a version of God that isn't correct. Because if you, we want to know the correct version of everything, including today the gospel, redemption, then it has to come from the Word of God. Now, you're going to have a, a, a lot of fun today because uh, I, I host a radio show for some of you that may not know that. been doing that for a very long time. 
this was the call of, uh, of my life from God is to be in radio and to, to preach and to teach. Uh, but uh, like a lot of people in Scripture, you see there's nothing good about them. The only thing that's good about them is, is, is if they're redeemed is Jesus, and God may be speaking through them. So today, I'm going to do an entire lesson wrapped around a word that I can't say very well. Uh, and, and I struggle with this word, and I've always struggled with it, but I can't get away from it because this whole lesson is going to land on this word and make sure that we understand that we know what it is. And, that's, um, and that is me trying to get the propitiation, uh, that Jesus is, is, is the uh, propitiation for us, meaning in redemption. And that's a hard word for me, and I'm going to struggle with it all day long. But when you look at the pagan view, uh, and, and he starts out kind of comparing these things. In, in, in the pagan view, there's all kinds of things that somebody has to try to do to be in the right standing with the, the gods or gods that they're dealing with. And there's all kinds of uh, variations of that. And of course, you know, and there's a lot of religions where, you know, say, well, I'm supposed to do good works. And, and, and did you ever know if you've done enough good works? And, and as we like to say in Christianity, every, every other religious worldview says, do this, do this, do this, do this. And of course, if you understand what Jesus Christ did, the heart of the gospel, Christianity stands on its own because it says done. Uh, everything has been done for us by the very God that we serve. And we're going to try to really, really understand this. Now, when you start uh, thinking about Jesus having to be the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain, and, and we'll get in this, and you have to kind of understand the Old Testament. And, and Packer starts out, and look, there's a lot to cover today, so I'm going to try to give you the C student, Calhoun County, Alabama version of a very long and complicated chapter of this book, but I'm going to try to break it down for you. We may run out of time. If we do, then we'll, we'll take this chapter and actually do two sessions on it. But the point you have to understand, if you look back through uh, the Word of God, you will see this sacrificial system this started in the Old Testament when we had the fall of mankind. Uh, I, I, I do this to talk a lot about, uh, you know, God kind of went on record uh, a lot of things early on. He went on record for marriage, never changed his, sta changed his standard. He also goes on record uh, of the kind of the pecking order between human beings and animals when the first thing after sin uh, enters the world, now God says he demands blood for, for, for the givenness to sin. And he, he says, I demand blood. And in the Old Testament, we see the very bloody sacrificial uh, system that involves animals' blood and the way these animals must be prepared. He also clothed Adam and Eve with skins from animals. So we're getting sac sacrifices of animals early on and throughout the process. But we kind of need to understand that uh, because I've, I've had a lot of Messianic Jewish people tell me they were never allowed to see the New Testament. But the way that they came to acknowledge Christ as Messiah uh, as the Redeemer uh, is because they understood the sacrificial system that was demanded in the Old Testament. And when they saw what, what Jesus did and when he went to the cross and how he was crucified and how he was sacrificed and the timeline and all the things that uh, the prophet said about redemption and the Lamb of God, they realized that Jesus met that criteria. So the New Testament you know, now takes a shift and says, you know, that now all the fulfillment of the sacrificial laws of the past, and there's so much you need to study about that if you'll take time about how all these animals had to be prepared and, 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 the, and the lambs had to be spotless and, and what the blood was intended to do. But blood was, was, was declared by God that there must be a blood sacrifice for true redemption of sin. But in the Old Testament, these are sin and guilt offerings, and they never stuck. You had to keep doing this over and over and over and over again, uh, and, and, and uh, it was perpetual, and, and you're always wondering whether you were doing enough. Well, the New Testament, if you go to the great book of Romans in chapter 3, 21 through 26, you see that God once and for all through Jesus offers justification of sinners. Just, you can be justified, but it, but it has to, we can't, we got to be sure that we word all this right which unfortunately that's going to get, get me involved with having to say propitiation a lot during this, which is not a good word for me. Uh, but, it, but, but, it, but it's important because in English it probably is the best word to use when we talk about Jesus taking our place and taking on God's wrath in our place and being, uh, that, that's the word that means he, he is substituted uh, for, for us and the wrath that needs to come. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, 
uh, and let's go to verse 21, Romans 3, 21. But now, talking about in the new covenant, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We're fulfilling the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning the law and the prophets tell us what, what God's standard is. That's why you have to know the law. That's why it's important. Uh, I, I, I respectfully disagree with anyone who says that we no longer have to worry about the Old Testament. We, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And, of course, when we're being taught uh, by all these wonderful people that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself, when he's referencing Scripture, what is he referencing? What are they referencing? The Old Testament. So the reason why that's important is you may not fully understand the heart of the gospel if you don't understand God's standard. And what, we're, what, we're, what that's trying to show us and the prophets and the law is trying to show us is we can't do it. This is a standard that we could never achieve now that we have our sin nature. Now that we've fallen, we can't do it because the law demands what? Perfection. Don't miss that. Don't miss, because you'll hear a lot of times people say incorrectly, well, you know, uh, I mean, we don't have to be perfect. Yes, you, yes, we do. God and the law and the prophets, God's saying through the prophets and through the law, I demand perfection. Only perfection can stand in my presence. So what did we need? We needed perfection. Who, who gives us perfection? Jesus. He doesn't make us partially righteous. He makes us fully righteous, which is the demand. So that's important. So Paul says, but now the righteousness, there it is, of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning Jesus did it uh, because, because he fulfilled the law, although the law and the prophets did bear witness to what? The standard. Look at 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how is the righteousness that God demands done? It is done through faith, meaning taking, taking trust in ourselves and giving trust to Jesus in Jesus Christ for all who do that. For there is no distinction. Now, this is back to Paul dealing with the Jew and the Gentile. Once Jesus came and said, hey, I, I make everybody fully righteous. I'm, I'm offering complete justification. No more rituals. No more of this. I offer complete justification that justification, what have we said? If you want true equality world that's gone crazy about equality, if you want true equality, come to the feet of Jesus, come to the foot of the cross, there's no distinction. Meaning what? We all are justified the same exact way. There's not a, a, a justification plan for white folks and a different justification plan for black folks and a different justification plan for the Jew and a different justification plan for the Gentile and a, da, 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 the male, the female. None of that exists. There's no distinction at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, if you want that equality, we all come the same way. And then here's 23. Why is there no distinction? And he tells us in verse 23, for all have sinned. Does it say some have sinned? No, it says all have sinned. For all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory, underline that. I've said that so many times in my life and just passed right over it. There's a standard again. Everybody, when you look at the glory of God, no one meets that standard. No human being. So we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then, of course, 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, and here's that word again, and he puts him forward as what? As a propitiation by his what? Blood to be received by faith. So you see, so he says, I need, I got to have that sacrifice. I got to have that blood. I've got to have that perfection. So what he did, he says, they can't do it, nor can anything else. I'm going to stop. I'm going to fulfill this, this, this sacrificial ritual stuff, this sacrificial system that I put together. I'm going to now send down the final sacrifice, the, the final lamb of God, and, and, they will, and they will all be redeemed. He will be the substitute by his blood, and that will be received how? It will be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So really, we could almost say that's the end of our lesson, but we won't because there's more to talk about. So, so we see that. So God's justification of sinners is crystal clear, okay? Uh, and, and let me finish with verse 26. 
It was to show his righteousness, there's that word again, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Once again, it's saying, if you want to get it all encompassed, you want to sit right with the holy God, the only way you're going to sit right with him with no concerns, no questions, no error, is for you to be found faithful to Jesus. Period. Period. He's done it. It's not due, it's done. But then how do we receive this gift of grace that Paul talks about through faith in Jesus? Period. All right, so, let's, let's, so, so first of all, God's justification of sinners. That's what the New Testament tells us about our state. This is how we're justified. The writer of Hebrews says what? The rationale of the incarnation of, of God the Son. Why in the world did, did God do this, and, and why would he, would he take on this, this human uh, 100% man, 100% God. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and then we're going to look at verse 17. Again, this is, uh, this is the rationale of the incarnation of the Son of God. Why, why did God do this? Look at 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning like, uh, like human beings, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Again, here's that word again to make appropriation, appropriation, there's that word for me, for the sins of the people. So, so he says if, if he can't do this, if he doesn't take on the 100% God and 100% man at the same time, propitiation can't take place. He, he can't be. He can't be what he has to be. So remember, you hear me warn you about this all the time. I warn you about this all the time. There are certain religions, I'm not going to call them denominations because they're not. There are certain religions out there that shroud themselves and pretend to be part of Christianity, but they do not believe what the writer of Hebrews says has to be believed. They do not believe that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. They don't believe that. And anybody who doesn't believe that, here's the writer of Hebrews, here's Paul, in, in Romans, they have to take uh, places like this in the Bible and throw it out because here's the writer of Hebrews saying he had to be like his brothers in every aspect. He had to be human being, but he also uh, had to be fully God in order for him to be the faithful high priest in the service of God. And if he doesn't do that, then he cannot be uh, the propitiation of, of sins for the people. can't happen. It, it doesn't count. He hadn't, he hadn't met the criteria. So, uh, so then you see, uh, turn over to 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and listen to what John is talking about, about the heavenly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The heavenly ministry. Look at, look at this. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Look at this. He is what? Again, here it is again. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So remember that. Don't you love the, the fact that what John's saying? Hey, children, don't, don't, don't panic when you're thinking about the holiness of God and you're thinking about the sinful nature of yourself or mankind. Hey, here's good news, which is what gospel means. Good news, the heart of the gospel. We have an advocate. We have an advocate who goes, goes before us to the Holy Father, and the Son goes before us and said, I'm an advocate for Rick Burgess. He's been redeemed. And as you know, Father, because I was 100% man and 100% God, and I, I was perfect, I was spotless, you know that I have been the propitiation for Rick's sins. I have taken the place, I have met the requirement that you demand, but not only for Rick, but for the entire world. Anybody who wants this gift. So then, so, so there's his heavenly ministry. Now, let's talk about the love of God. Uh, go to chapter 4 uh, of 1 John. Chapter 4. Go over there with me to verses 8 through 10. Chapter 4, 1 John, 4 through 10. And here's the love that's in, involved. Little children, uh, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. How many times have you heard that? But listen to what John's saying. Don't take verses like that and turn them into bumper stickers. So he's saying to you that you are from God. We were made from God. And you know, and, and how about you, you've overcome 
the spirit of the Antichrist, which is what he was talking about, for those that will, that will, that will never fail, you've overcome, you have not turned against God, you have not blasphemed God, you are found in Christ, so you've overcome. He said, because the, all this evil that's tried to tear at you and all this sin that tried to condemn you and the adversary that's tried to come after you because of Jesus, we've overcome him because he who is in us is greater than he is in the world. Look at five. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we, what belonging to, to God, we belonging to God are not uh, from the world. Now jump down to, to verse 8. Jump down to 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9. And this love of God was, was made manifest among us. What are we talking about? Jesus. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Look at verse 10. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be, there's the word that I have to deal with this entire lesson, but it's important, propitiation for our sins. He says, you want to see how much God loves you? Look to the cross. How many times have we said that in here? He who is in you is greater than the world. And if you want to know why God did this, He did it because He loved you. And you know what? He loved us, and let's be honest, raise your hand. I'll raise my hand up and I'm embarrassed. Forgive me, Lord, for this. I spent more of my life God loving me, but I didn't love him. I mean, you, what, what do you mean God loved you before you loved him? He went to the cross before I, ever, before I ever was redeemed. He already went to the cross for me. So apparently he loved me before I ever loved him. And, and the reason why he did that, why did God lower himself and take on human flesh, go to the cross to be propitiation for our sins? Why did he, why did he say this requirement must be met Nothing can meet it. I will meet the requirement with my own son. The father sends the son, and then his presence is the Holy Spirit. Our triune God, Jehovah says, I will meet the standard myself because I love these people enough to at least give them a shot at it. And then we have to decide whether we love him. When do we start loving him? After he redeems us, because you can't do it before him. You really can't. Then you start loving him because you now know him, and once you, once you know him, you love him, and once you love him, you start obeying him, and that's that faith in action we're talking about. You place your faith, in, your, your trust in him, not yourself. You repent of your sin. I repent of my sin. I turn. I say, I believe that you have paid the debt. I believe you did take my place. You have, but what does it mean? What did he take the place of? And we'll talk more about that as we go forward. All right, so, so that kind of gives you kind of the, the setup of the heart of the gospel. Uh, we understand God's justification for sinners. We understand the rationale for the incarnation of God through the Son. We understand the heavenly ministry of our Lord. And we understand that the, this, if you want to know the definition of God's love, just look to the cross. So now let's, let's unpack the word on, 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 and ask the question. And it's a hard question for J.I. Packer. He says, does propitiation, does that word have any place in your Christianity? In the faith of the New Testament, it is central, as we just talked about. The love of God, the taking of human form by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, the way of salvation, all are explained in terms of propitiation. As the passages quoted show, any explanation from which the thought of propitiation is missing will be incomplete and indeed actually misleading by New Testament standards. So if we don't understand this English word, if we, if we don't fully understand what it means, then, then we will never get the gospel right because you don't really understand uh, what happened. So I was looking at some of the, um, the definitions of it, and, and we certainly will, will, will cover it here in, uh, in our study today, but I started looking at uh, what, what does... You know, just if, if you start looking at, uh, at, at just the dictionary, here's what it says. It says it's the action of appeasing God. The action of appeasing, uh, it, here it says by the world standard, a God, a spirit, or a person. But when, but when we look at what it means when you look into to Scripture, uh, it means that, uh, that we are going to incur, you know, if you're going to incur, meaning I will receive God's favor, and guess what else? I'll avoid his retribution. I mean, if, if you really want to, to sum it up, that's what Jesus does with this word and why it's important in English is this is the word that means that I will, I will be in good standing with God and I'll avoid his wrath, if you want me to sum it up 
And, and that's what Jesus did. So if we don't get that, if we think Jesus went to the cross for other reasons, you know, like to, 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 uh, to go out and do good works or to be part of this ever-growing social gospel, you know, so why did Jesus go to the cross? So I would have a desire to go help people that need help. Well, that's important. Now, that's fruit that flows from that, and that's a great thing, and, and we certainly should, but that's not why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross so that we would be in the right standing with the holy God, meaning that, yeah, I mean, we can a absolutely, you know, receive his favor, but the part that, and we've talked about it a lot in the scriptures, when we, especially when we're getting around Easter, but it's also that we do not receive his anger. We do not receive his wrath, which is why we kind of built up through that uh, on those different parts of God before we got to the heart of the gospel. Here's what Paul said. Paul says, even if we are, if, if we go out and we, we hear somebody claiming is an angel from heaven, he said, or, or a minister or a bishop, or we would add a college lecturer, some university professor, if they preach a gospel other than the one which Paul says, we've been preaching to you, you let that person be eternally condemned. Now think about that. Now you need to listen. When people start coming up with other versions of the gospel and they start giving other attributes to this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if they, if they change this, this crucifixion narrative like, like the, 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 and I'm, and I'm, the person you know, out of, out of Georgia that is, that's now serving in our government that claims to be a, a preacher, well, he's preaching a different gospel. Now, he's since taken this down when he says that really, he, he says propitiation was not really done by Jesus. It's not even necessary. If you go out and treat people well and do good things, well, you'll be saved. There's really no need. You, you didn't need Jesus to, sta to stand in your way. Now, he never explains why the cross happened then. If that's not the case, which I think that's an important follow-up, he doesn't do that. So what Paul just said, anybody that preaches you anything other than the gospel we preach you, you let that person be eternally condemned. The King James Version says, let that person be accursed. Um, uh, other, other translations in English say, let that person be an outcast. Let that person be damned. Um, a, a gospel without, if it does not have at the heart of it, propitiation, is if it's not there, meaning Jesus took not only has got us, he's the only way we can be justified, and he's the only way that we can avoid God's wrath. If, if anybody teaches you anything other than that, any Jesus plus, then that person, and you heard all the things we said, should be condemned, should be a curse, should be an outcast, should be damned, all those things. And, and, and Paul preached this. He says the implications of this to those who preach false gospels, J.I. Packer says, don't sugarcoat that. Don't try to evade that uncomfortable because that's what the Bible says. So if anybody's teaching you anything different about the heart of the gospel than what we're talking about today, you need to avoid those people. You need to avoid them. So, um, and um, uh, uh, one, another thing that I think is, is important, and, and he talks about this a little bit on, uh, uh, in the book, and, and I underline this. He says, some people will preach to you that, that, that they don't, they don't treat the propitiation, what they really teach is um, uh, X, 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 uh, I can't think, say this word anymore. Well, here's the bottom line. They're trying to teach you E-X-P-I-T-I-O-N, which is um, uh, expiation. So expiation, that just means that Jesus extinguished guilt and rubbed out your sin. That's all he did. Hey, good, good news. Jesus made you get, hey, you don't have to be guilty about your sin anymore. And he says, that's not it. That, that's, that's, that's only partially right. No, what he did is he justified you to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God and to, to receive God's favor when it isn't deserved and to also avoid his wrath. And I'm going to say that over and over again because we have to get this. If anybody's teaching you that all Jesus did was to extinguish your guilt and to rub out your sin and they're not letting you know that he also appeased God's, he also appeased God's wrath, if anybody teaches you anything different than that, be careful. That for some reason, they don't want to, to tell you the truth. So let's look again. If you don't believe that Jesus also uh, uh, helped us to avoid God's wrath, he's appeased the wrath of God. I've told it over and over and over again, and J.I. Packer talked about it in his book, and it made me feel good to have somebody as godly as J.I. Packer to affirm this whole deal about Jesus struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why, because he had to appease God's wrath. It's not about the cross. 
That's just, that's just the way he was going to be sacrificed, and it's horrible. But this stress in the garden was about the son going, hey, I'm not stressing over the fact that I'm about to rub out everybody's sin, and I'm about to remove uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the verdict of sin, which is going to be eternal death. Yes, I'm going to do that, but in the process of doing that, I'm not just going to rub out their sin. I'm actually going to appease my father's wrath, and i got to take that on the cross. And if you miss that, then you've missed the heart of the gospel. You don't have the full picture. you got half the picture. It's almost like you took the, the part that made you feel more comfortable. But I've, we've said this over and over again. It's the fact that Jesus took his father's wrath that really, that really just, that, that just, to me, what flows from that when I understand that is thankfulness. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that he's offered me justification and forgiveness of my sin. Yes, of course. But that doesn't really... The thankfulness doesn't flow from that as much as it does that you also appease God's wrath that I deserved. Hey, Jesus, thank you for that. Romans 5 and 10, we know that God's wrath is real as his love, just as the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus was the direct manifestation of the Father's love toward us, so it was the direct averting of his Father's wrath against us. Look, look, look what Paul said if you want to go back to, to Romans 5. I mean... Paul is saying, let me tell you something. What's, what's good news about all this, brothers, is, is that Jesus has, has appeased the wrath that was due us. Look at 510 in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So Paul, he says, look, straight up, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So if, 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 if here's Paul recognizing and celebrating that we were reconciled to God, well, then why do we have to be reconciled? We know that God's wrath is as real as his love. We talked about that all the way up to this, and that's why the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus was a direct manifestation of the Father's love toward us, so it was also the direct averting of his Father's wrath against us. That's important. And uh, again, J.I. Packer goes up, goes back in, in the next part. I, I guess he feels like we haven't gotten it yet. And he begins to talk about God's anger again. So what is this anger that's going against the unredeemed? What's this anger against all that blasphemes him? John Murray probably sums this up as, as well as you can. I love this definition of God's anger. It's something that flows from him uncontrollably. Why? Because he's holy. Listen to what he says. He says, God's anger, this is John Murray, the holy revulsion. He, 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 it's just revulsion, holy revulsion of God's being, it's his revulsion of being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. He, he reviles what is in contradiction to him. I love that. That's God's anger. He can't, he can't, you know, we talk about this all the time. Well, I don't understand. I mean, why can't God just, uh, just, why did he have to do all this? Why did Jesus have to, why did he just say we're forgiven? He can't. He, he can't. There, 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 there's, there's, there's punishment uncontrollable. His holiness pours out any, against anything that's in contradiction with him. If you're in contradiction to God's holiness, his anger comes out flowing from him just as much a part of him as his love and, and grace is. So that's why it had to be corrected. That, that's why this word that Rick has a hard time saying is extremely important because without this, uh, we're, we're missing half of the puzzle. We can't just say, well, uh, I don't really like this idea of uh, appropriation for my sins. I just like the idea of forgiveness for my sins. Okay, that, that's fine, but, but if you don't understand th this, this, this wrath part, then you don't understand the heart of the gospel. I, I said this before, and I stand by this. I believe that if you don't understand the averting of God's wrath, I don't think you know how to celebrate Easter. I don't think you know how to celebrate it uh, because what you've done is made this a pretty good thing uh, as, as, a most, uh, as opposed to it being incredible news. So let's describe once again, uh, trying to get this word uh, uh, appropriation to get it right. It is the work of God himself. And, and, and that's important for us to understand, understand that. The doctrine of the appropriation is precise, precisely this. So understand the doctrine of it. 
that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ, uh, it, it was Christ so to deal with the wrath that, that, that loved uh, would, would no longer be the objects of wrath. And love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. You see what I'm talking about? The real doctrine of understanding appropriation is God loved us, but he's loving the objects of his wrath if he doesn't do something about it. So he, he's loving these objects, but his wrath must be poured out on these objects. So he has to send the Son that by his blood, he'll make provision for the removal of the wrath that must come on us. So, so what's happening is Christ says, I'll take the wrath so that those that you love will no longer be objects of your wrath, and then I'll turn them, as opposed to being objects of your wrath, I will turn them into objects of your love, and then they, instead of them being children of wrath, Father, they'll now be children of your good pleasure. <laughs> Does that fire anybody up? Is that exciting? That's a really big deal. So God's wrath was coming on me and Jesus stood in the way of it. Yes, he did. That's big. And let me tell you this, though. What it also means, that means if you have not been reconciled to the Father and you have not been justified by Jesus Christ and you have not been redeemed, you're not the object of God's pleasure. You're the object of God's wrath. Paul and John, they state this explicitly and emphatically. God reveals his righteousness, says Paul, not only in retribution and judgment according to his law, but also apart from the law in bestowing righteousness on those who put faith in Jesus Christ. They all have sinned, yet they are all justified, acquitted, accepted, reinstated, set right with God freely and for nothing. We talked about this in Romans uh, 3 earlier. 21 through 24. So how does this take place? Well, obviously by grace. What do we mean by grace? That is mercy contrary to merit. That's what grace is. I received mercy, but I didn't merit the mercy. Okay, because we don't. It, it means love for the unlovely. It, it means uh, one uh, unlovable. Or, or, or so, so, so by what means, what means does this grace operate? Through the redemption. And what does redemption mean, Rick? It means rescued by or ransomed. Okay. That is in Christ Jesus. How is it that those who put their faith in him, Christ Jesus, is the source, the means, and the substance of redemption? How is that, Rick? Because, says Paul, God set him forth to be propitiation from this divine initiative, the reality and availability of redemption flow. That's the reason why we have to get this word right, even though I struggle saying it. We have to get it right. We have to understand that, that, that Jesus was the only person that could make this happen, meaning that we could incur, we, we could incur God's, God's, God's divine pleasure and we could avoid his wrath. And, and John and Paul keep saying, if you don't understand this, then you don't understand how we are redeemed. And it's important that we, uh, that we get this right. So... So, so, so we got that part. So let's go to the next one. Appropriation was made by the death of Jesus Christ. Here's that thing about blood. Why did Jesus have to die? You ever thought about that? Why did he have to die? Blood. Blood, as we hinted earlier, is a word pointing to the violent death inflicted in the animal sacrifices of the old covenant. God himself instituted these sacrifices by his own commands. If you want to see this, <clears throat> go to Leviticus chapter 17. Verse 17, I'm going to tell you what it says, but if you want to write that down, you can go look at it yourself. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes the atonement. See, God's already established this. If you want to be redeemed, and you want your sins to be forgiven, and you want my wrath to be averted, there must be blood. Because why? Life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. When Paul tells us that God set forth Jesus as propitiation by what? His blood. So, so how did Jesus become the propitiation? By his blood. 
And, and what he means by that is Paul always points to the death of Jesus as the atoning event and explains the atonement in terms of representative substitution. That's important. The innocent taking the place of the guilty in the name of and for the sake of the guilty under the acts of God's judicial retribution. Now let's look at a couple of passages if you want to illustrate this, okay? Uh, Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? There must be blood. By becoming a curse for us. Galatians, so see, substitution. That's what propitiation means. There must, it's a substitute for what was needed. Is everybody with me on this? Am I losing anybody? Christ bore the curse of the law, which was directed against us, so that we may not have to bear it. This is representative substitution. One died for all, and through Jesus' death, God was reconciling the world to himself. What does this reconciliation involve? Not counting men's sins against them, but causing them in Christ to become the righteousness of God, and that is accepted as righteous by God. Remember what the Scripture said? And that's what Jesus was coming to do, the new Adam. By one man, the whole world was going to die because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Notice though we always say Adam, we don't say men, by Adam's lack of, lack of leadership. So we all are going to die because of the sin of one man, and we're all going to be redeemed by the, the death and resurrection of one man, Jesus. And that's exactly what he's talking about. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It thus appears that it was a sacrifice for sinners enduring the death penalty in their steed. How about that? He, he got in. He, he stood in for us that one died for all. So, so he steps in. Look, he's going to step in for us. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 14. Write that down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14. And then I want you to go in chapter 5 and also read verses 18 through 21. Once again, if, he, if he's stepping in for us, this is representative substitution. Everybody got that? If you, you, we have to get that. He, he's jumping in to be the substitute for what was required. That, that's, that's what this whole lesson this week is about. So what else? What does propitiation also do? It manifests God's righteousness. God set forth his son to what? To propitiate his own wrath, meaning he's, he's stopping God's wrath to declare his righteousness, meaning his justice, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. That's back to Romans chapter 3. Again, I'm giving you King James Version now. But the bottom line is, um, here's Paul telling us, God's righteousness is going to demand perfection, and it, and it, it doesn't demand partial righteousness. It, it demands complete righteousness. And so and for us to be just, we must have a justifier, and that was Jesus. The word declare here implies a public display, which we saw on the cross, Paul's point is that the public spectacle of propitiation at the cross was a public manifestation, not merely of justifying mercy on God's part, certainly that, certainly that, but of righteousness and justice uh, as the basis of justifying mercy. Well, well, why was it merciful? What was so merciful about it? Because of his wrath. See, this is the part I think we miss from the gospel. And let me tell you something. J.I. Packer certainly wants us to understand that. Uh, so, so God is, um, is pouring his wrath out on the Lamb of God that stood in our place. That, 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 that's the bottom line of what happened. Turn over to Romans again. Let's go to, let's go to chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Let's look at verse 25. Let's let's look at twenty four first. But for our also for ours also it has been it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Look at twenty five, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
So, so God hasn't forgot about his wrath. I think that's the part. I think the part that everybody wants is that the, what the gospel means is that God changed his mind and that God just, just decided that he didn't, didn't, need, didn't need this anymore and he did, he's not going to have any wrath anymore. That's not what happened. His wrath was not forgotten. The wrath was poured out on the Son, the, the Lamb of God, who stood there in our place. And that's what the, the death of Jesus Christ accomplished. So, so we found out that the driving force in Jesus' life was this. Now, if you've never read the Gospel of John, uh, Mark, and J.I. Packer challenges us to do that, the driving force in the life of Jesus, if you sat down for an hour, he says, and read through <clears throat> the gospel according to Mark, and he says this will be a fruitful exercise for you, you get the, the impression of Jesus, which includes at least four features. Your basic impression will be of a man of action, a man always on the move, always altering situations, always precipitating things, working miracles, calling and training disciples, upsetting era that passed his truth, uh, and irreligion that passed his godliness, and finally walking straight in, uh, in uh, open-eyed and betrayal, condemnation, and, of course, crucifixion. Your further impression will be of a man who knew himself to be a divine person. He knew he was the Son of God, and he certainly knew he was fulfilling the messianic role that, that had to be. So you will see that. Uh, and he says your impression will be of one whose messianic mission centered on his being put to death. He knew this was coming. One who was consciously and single-mindedly preparing to die in this way long before the idea of a suffering Messiah had really took hold of anyone else. Remember we studied the Gospel of John? John's saying we all think he's here to, to lead us in a military overthrow. Uh, he knows why he's here long before we figured out. He says and your final impression will be of one whom uh, his, uh, this experience of death uh, was the most fearful ordeal. Now, this is back to what I said earlier. In Gethsemane, you see horror and, horror and dismay come over him, and you see him saying, he said, look, my heart is ready to break with grief. Jesus, Jesus is talking about, man, this, this, is, this is weighty. Uh, I'm struggling with it. Uh, I asked my father if there's another way uh, uh, to, 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 to let this cup of wrath, which is his wrath again, that's that wrath being averted. Let this cup of wrath pass. When he saw that the Father offered no other way, he was resolute to the cross. But it was still a gruesome ordeal for Jesus. We see also on the cross, what does he say? In these words, I think, I hope, if you love Jesus, it's, uh, it's difficult to hear. And that's when Jesus says to the Father, My God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I, I, he's experiencing the wrath of God. He's troubled by it. He's perspiring to the point that the capillaries in his forehead are bursting, producing blood. He's under tremendous stress. Then he goes to the cross. That's horrific. And then he begins to cry out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, this should. Uh, so how should we explain Jesus' his belief in the necessity of his death? How should we account for the fact that what drove him on throughout his public ministry, all four Gospels testify, testified that it was the conviction that he had to be killed. But since Jesus was raised from the dead and in the power of his risen life still taught his disciples that his death had been a necessity. It, it had to happen. You'll see him talking about this in Luke 24, 26 through 27. Luke 24, 26 through 27. So if Paul or John had, had been asked the question, about whether this, uh, the gospel had to be done the way it was done, they would have certainly answered it. But it says it was because Jesus was made to be sin and bear God's judgment on sin, that's why he trembled in the garden, because he was actually bearing that judgment that he declared himself forsaken of God on the cross. The driving force in Jesus' life was his resolve to what? Be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us about this with these exact words in Philippians 2, verse 8, the unique dreadfulness of his death lies in the fact that he, 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 he tasted on Calvary, what? The wrath of God, which was our due. So once again, what did he do? He was making propitiation for our sins.
That's why we have to understand this word and understand the heart of the gospel. This is why you hear this agony taking place on the cross. It's because what the Bible says had to happen was actually happening. And we need to pay attention to that. So uh, we have to also think of this. What happens to those who reject God? What happens to those who reject God? We, ha we have to think of this, secondly. The destiny of those who reject Him. Well, it's really, really, really straightforward. Decisions made in this life will have eternal consequences. Do not be deceived. Meaning, don't listen to universalists that tell you you're going to heaven just cause. Everybody's going to heaven. Universalists, look, I hope you're looking into this camera. I hope you're listening on the audio. Universalists are wrong. If you reject this heart of this gospel, if you reject the propitiation that only Jesus Christ provides, if you reject that, then you will not receive God's favor and you will not uh, avert his wrath. That will not happen. Then you will receive his wrath and you will not be righteous in his sight. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, Galatians 6 and 7. Listen to this. The universalist needs to listen to this. This is Jesus himself. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So that's what happens to those who reject God, the destiny for that person is separation from God and eternal damnation. The universalists are wrong. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 9 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if Paul's telling Thessalonica, those that have the breastplate of, of faith, how do, we, how, do we, how do we receive justification? Faith in Jesus and, and, and the love that comes with that. And if our helmet is the hope of salvation, remember Paul's talked about this to the Ephesians. He said, because for those that have the breastplate of faith and the helmet of salvation, for those that have been redeemed, God has not destined those people for wrath. So what does that mean for those that decided not to do that? Then their destination is wrath. Third, we can think about God's gift of peace. I agree with J.I. Packer here, and I've done it. I've been guilty of this. Too often the peace of God is thought of as if we were essentially uh, just having this feeling of inner tranquility, happiness, carefree, springing from the knowledge that God will shield one from life's hardest knocks. That is not the peace that God provides. This is a misrepresentation. For on the one hand, God does not feather bed his children in this way. Anybody know that? We struggle, don't we? We suffer. We have difficulty. He said, anybody that thinks this is how God works uh, is in for a real shock. He says, on the other hand, that which is basic and essential to the real peace of God does not come into this concept at all. What is the real peace of God? God's peace brings us two things. Okay, let's, let's think about it. First of all, um, uh, the, 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 the peace of God is first and foremost what? Peace with God. It is the state of affairs in which God, instead of being against us, is for us. Does that not bring you peace? If you want to know the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about in John 16, 33, I say this so that you'll have peace. In this world, he says, you won't be in a feather bed. You'll face tribulation. You have difficulty, but always have joy in your heart. Always be, always have the peace knowing what? I have overcome the world. What have you overcome, Jesus? I've overcome the problem that you have between my Holy Father and I've been propitiation. I have stood in. I have replaced it. I have been a substitute and I've stood in the way of God's wrath. I've received it. I've protected you from God's wrath. That's the kind of peace you need to walk around with. Not, not this eternal, hey, I'm happy, everything is good. It's not, you're not, you're not, no, that's not what it's about. Hashtag blessed. Now, let me tell you where, where the peace comes from is I was at odds with God and now I'm not. 
Somebody say amen to that. The peace of God then primarily and fundamentally is a new relationship of forgiveness and acceptance. And the source, source that this flows from is what? Propitiation. I didn't get what I deserved. Jesus stepped in and did it for me. The fourth thing is what? The dimension of, of uh, the dimensions of the love of God. Paul prays that the readers of his Ephesian letter says may, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ to know this love, this surpasses knowledge. When you look at the heart of the gospel, what does it do? It gives you the dimensions of God's love. God's love was free. It was, we didn't have to uh, elicit this by any goodness in us. We didn't deserve it. It's eternal, uh, being one of the, with, with the choice of sinners to, to, to save, which the Father made before the creation of the world. It was unreserved, for, for it led, uh, led down to the depths of humiliation for Christ. Indeed, hell itself on Calvary. It was sovereign because, it, because it, it, it has achieved its object, the final glory of the redeemed, their perfect holiness and happiness. And this is ultimately the, the greatest representation of God's love. Paul talks about this in great detail. He said only those, uh, only those who know what, what the gospel really means and they understand his glorious grace they're the only ones that can truly praise the name of the triune Jehovah as they should. Which brings us to our final point. We're going to make it. Lastly, the meaning of God's glory. Remember, remember I referenced that earlier in Romans? Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. This is John 13, 31. What does this mean, Son of Man? Son of Man was, was His name for Himself as Savior King who before being enthroned must fulfill Isaiah 53. Go read Isaiah 53 today. And when he spoke of the present glorifying of the Son of Man and of God in him, he was thinking specifically of the atoning death, the lifting up on the cross. Do you see the glory of God in his wisdom, power, righteousness, truth, and love supremely disclosed at Calvary? in the making of propitiation for our sins. The Bible does, and we venture to add, if you felt the burden and the pressure of your own sins at their true weight, if we really understood how sinful we really, really are, and if we felt the weight of it the way Jesus did in the garden, let me tell you, brother, and let me tell you, sister, you'd be stressed too. And I think sometimes we have to be reminded of the heart of the gospel and what actually took place. In heaven, where things are better understood, what a great word by J.I. Packer, angels and men unite as John sees in the Revelation, chapter 5, verse 12. He sees it again, the Revelation, chapter 7, 9 through 12. See, see they understand what he's seeing. They understand the heart of the gospel. They understand what Jesus did, which is why they unite and they pray and they sing what? Praise to the Lamb who was slain. Praise to the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb, propitiation, the substitute, the Lamb of God who stepped in to make us right with a holy God who stepped in in and took the wrath that was due us and shed the blood that must be shed and allowing all of us who have faith in him to avoid what we deserve. That's the heart of the gospel. So have you been saved? Do, do you look at your life and understand what Jesus has done? And have you done what you need to do to repent of your sins, to have faith in Jesus and say, I understand that you stepped in as a substitute for me. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Can I have the propitiation? Can I be in favor with God? Can I avoid his wrath in you? 
The beautiful answer is yes. Yes, you can. And if you haven't, why don't you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Draw those to you, Lord. Thank you. You are worthy of praise. Praise to the Lamb who was slain. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself for us. And forgive us when we take it so lightly. In your holy name we pray. Amen. If I can help you, Rick at rickandbubba.com. Thanks for being with us.